You are listening to The Loop Podcast, a project in plastic surgery innovation. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to another episode of The Loop Podcast. I am Hazem Sok, and I'm a final year medical student at New Giza University in Cairo, Egypt. Today, I'll be joined by my co-host, Joshua Kohan, and our guest host, Dr. Anjali Raghuram from the University of Pittsburgh. Before we start, why don't we go around and introduce ourselves? Yeah, thanks so much, Hazem. Uh, I'm Josh Cohen. I'm a rising fourth year at the University of Vermont College of Medicine. I'm uh, originally from Long Island, New York, uh, applying to plastic surgery this year. My interests are cooking and traveling, a uh, big sports fan as well, and uh, you know, I'll pass it to Dr. Anjali. Great. Hi, everyone. My name is Anjali Raghuram, and I'm a second-year plastic surgery resident at the University of Pittsburgh Medical Center. I'm originally from Texas and lived there for most of my life before moving over to Pennsylvania. My interests in plastic surgery are pretty broad at this time, but encompass microsurgery and reconstructive surgery. Today, we'll be going over lasers and chemical peels, and we'll be covering the high-yield concepts for the in-service exam. The term laser stands for light amplification by stimulated emission of radiation. We know that lasers can be monochromatic, coherent or in-phase, or collimated, and that their wavelength determines the depth of tissue penetration. The higher the wavelength, the deeper the tissue penetration. Different lasers act on different chromophores. The duration of action, or the pulse width of lasers, should be less than the target tissue's thermal relaxation time. This means that energy must be introduced to the target faster than it is able to thermally relax. This is the reason why we use shorter ranges in nanoseconds to treat tattoo pigments, longer ranges in milliseconds to continuous application to treat vascular lesions. Before diving into specific treatment for different lesions, Josh, could you walk us through the different energy delivery modes in laser therapy? All right. Yeah, absolutely. Sure. So there are three modes of energy delivery that we need to differentiate. Continuous waves, pulse waves, and Q-switch waves. We no longer use continuous waves since they cause significant scarring. When using pulse lasers, we match the timing of pulses to the size of the target and its thermal relaxation time. Lastly, Q-switch lasers provide extremely high bursts of energy delivered in short intervals, approximately nanoseconds to picosecond ranges, to target small particles such as melanin and tattoo pigments, or other different chromophores. Great, so Dr. Raghuram, we know that lasers are currently being applied in treating various vascular lesions like port wine stains, hemangiomas, lymphatic malformations, telangiectasias, and rosacea. Can you please tell us how to go about laser therapy for each of these conditions? Absolutely. So the chromophore targeted in treating vascular lesions is oxyhemoglobin. The endpoint of treatment is vascular clearance or purpura. We select lasers according to the nature of the lesion treated. So for example, starting with hemangiomas and lymphatic malformations, we use the ND-YAG 1064 nanometer laser. However, we want to remember that we focus treatment of hemangiomas on those that cause functional impairment, and that we provide this treatment during an early stage when growth of the lesion can be halted. Laser treatment of hemangiomas is contraindicated in their proliferative phase because this can result in ulceration and necrosis. 
Moving on, we use a pulse dye laser to treat port wine stains and telangiectasias, which may remain after the involution of a hemangioma. As for rosacea and associated rhinophyma, we can use a KTP 532 nanometer laser for rosacea, pulsed yellow dye laser for telangiectasias, and for advanced stage rhinophyma, CO2 laser excision. Now, Hassem, can you tell us more about laser applications in tattoo removal? Definitely. So the foundational concept for laser tattoo removal is that we use specific lasers to target individual wavelength of different color pigments, with the endpoint of treatment being the visualization of a wide confluence. Therefore, the best laser to target dark pigments like black and blue is the Q-switch in the actin 64 nanometer laser, as it has the deepest tissue penetration and the least risk of hypopigmentation. We can also use the Q-switch Ruby 694 nm laser, which is absorbed by melanin and carbon, to target dark pigments including purple and green. A side effect is transient hypopigmentation. That said, the best laser to target green pigments is the Q-switch Alexandrai 755 nm laser. For red, yellow, orange, and brown color pigments, we can use the Q-switch NDAG 532 nm laser, which targets hemoglobin as its chromophore. Bear in mind that yellow and orange pigments are highly resistant to removal, and special consideration should be taken. That sums up how we currently approach tattoo laser removal. But Dr. Bregaram, what about laser hair removal? So laser hair removal commonly uses the diode 800 nanometers and the ND-YAG 1064 nanometer lasers with melanin as the targeted chromophore. Both of these lasers are safe for treating light and darker skin types, ranging from Fitzpatrick 1 to 6. However, they are not particularly useful in very fair-haired patients who have low levels of melanin in their hair follicles. We generally prefer long-pulsed lasers for these patients as they are better for hair removal. So Josh, what other types of lasers target melanin as their chromophore to treat pigmented lesions like solar lentigines and nevi? Well, the Q-switch rubi is most effective for these pigmented lesions. However, it is also possible to treat these patients with the KTP 532 nanometer, Q-switch and long pulse ruby 694 nanometer, or Alexandrite 755 nanometer lasers. Hazem, what are therapeutic applications of lasers in treating specialized scars? We use the KTP 532 nanometers and the NDAct in 64 nanometer lasers in scar treatment. For burn scars that are specifically in the facial area, we prefer to use a pulsed yellow dye with a wavelength of either 585 or 595 nanometers. In addition to scars, pulsed dye lasers may also be used to treat infectious lesions such as warts. Josh, can you tell us more about this? Yeah, sure. Pulse dye and CO2 lasers have been successfully used to ablate warts, but can be painful, expensive, and cause scarring. Additionally, when treating warts, we have to consider the status of our patient's immune system for ultimate eradication. Be wary of multiple progressive warts, particularly in immunocompromised patients, as this may indicate need to biopsy and investigate further for malignant transformation. Thank you, Josh, for that insight. Now let's dive into laser scan resurfacing treatments. Dr. Raghuram, can you please walk us through these? Of course. So laser skin resurfacing focuses on water as the target chromophore. 
Lasers are classified according to their mechanism of action, so whether they are ablative or non-ablative. Ablative lasers include the Erbium YAG 2940 nanometer laser, which can be used to treat moderate to heavy rides, and the carbon dioxide 10,600 nanometer laser, which is frequently popularized in public perception of resurfacing techniques. Non-ablative lasers include the Erbium doped fiber 1550 nanometer laser, as well as fractional lasers used for acne scar resurfacing in patients with darker skin types ranging from Fitzpatrick 4 to 6. These fractional lasers work by denaturing dermal collagen and causing subsequent remodeling. Their advantage is that they do not cause vaporization or damage to the epidermal layer. Beyond resurfacing, ablative and non-ablative lasers can be used to treat hypertrophic scars, freckles, skin texture abnormalities, and dyschromia. Before I go more into ablative lasers and their complications, Hassam, can you tell us about patient pre-treatment before undergoing laser skin resurfacing? Yes, in order to promote faster healing and prevent post-treatment hyperpigmentation, we start the patient on hydroquinone 4% and tretinoine 0.05% about 4-6 to six weeks before the procedure. We should also instruct the patient to discontinue any oral products containing isotretinoin or Accutane about 6 months to 1 year before the procedure. This is to mitigate the risk of scarring and healing complications that may occur. Great. And what else can we do for patients who have a history of herpes simplex or HSV viral lesions? We start a patient prophylactically on antivirals 48 hours before and 7 to 10 days after the treatment or procedure. Perfect. So to pick up where we left off, we are going to differentiate between two important ablative lasers, the CO2 10,600 nanometer and the Erbium YAG 2940 nanometer laser. Though both of these lasers target water as their chromophore, the Erbium YAG laser has nearly 13 times greater affinity for water. When treating patients with the Erbium YAG laser, our endpoint is pinpoint or petechial bleeding in the papillary dermis. We can use this laser to treat areas with very thin skin, such as that found in the nasal tip or the neck. The recovery time is shorter, and patients benefit from decreased risk of hypopigmentation and erythema than with CO2 lasers. CO2 lasers, on the other hand, have a treatment endpoint in the deeper reticular dermis with the characteristic chamois yellow skin color. This deeper level of treatment increases risk of hypopigmentation and scarring. What are the common complications associated with laser resurfacing treatments? Post-inflammatory hyperpigmentation risk is higher among patients with darker skin tones, so Fitzpatrick 4 through 6, and for those with history of prior significant sun exposure. Hyperpigmentation can develop any time from 6 weeks to 6 months after laser treatment. We can treat this with hydroquinone and tretinoin, but it's likely hyperpigmentation will resolve or improve within one year. Other complications include hyperemia and purpura. An important complication that we've touched on previously is reactivation of HSV, which will typically present during the first week post-op. This is why we give antiviral prophylaxis with Valtrex or Valcyclovir before treatment and for 10 to 14 days post-treatment. Are there any other laser treatment complications that we should consider in the long term? Yes, hypopigmentation remains the most common long-term complication of laser treatments, particularly after CO2 lasers, and occurs within one to two years following laser treatment. 
Hypertrophic scarring is another possible complication that can happen with multiple laser passes and excess energy delivery. This is treated with pulse dye laser, steroid injections, and silicone sheeting. Post-treatment erythema can occur more commonly with CO2 lasers and with associated pain, swelling, and pruritus. As we have alluded to previously, this is not a true complication and typically lasts one to four months before spontaneously resolving. Erythema can be treated with ascorbic acid or vitamin C if it lasts more than four months. Now that we've covered the most common and important complications of lasers in general, Hassem, can you tell us what precautions we need to take to ensure our patient's safety and our own protection during these treatments? Sure. So to ensure maximum safety for ourselves and our patients, we must wear eye protection at all times during the procedure, and we need to make sure that our patients have appropriate eye protection too. We want to appropriately drape patients for laser resurfacing intraoperatively and be mindful to limit oxygen exposure and keep oxygen saturation settings around 30% or less to prevent inhalational injury or burns. We should also place a plume evacuator 1-2 to two centimeters away from the treatment setup, particularly with erbium and carbon dioxide lasers, to prevent transmission of viral particles and aerosolized byproducts. Some recommend having ice available both pre- and post-treatment to cool the skin as well. Let's dive into our last topic, which is chemical peels with Josh. Thanks, Azam. That was an excellent overview. As we know, each chemical peel has its associated pros and cons for each skin type. Since the Fitzpatrick scale is our main metric for optimizing laser treatment with patient outcomes, why don't we go ahead and do a quick recap? Dr. Ragaran. Great idea. So the Fitzpatrick skin type scale essentially describes a person's skin color, sensitivity to UV light, and whether the skin type characteristically burns or tans with sun exposure. It's graded on a scale from one to six. Patients with Fitzpatrick types one or two will be fair skinned and may have freckles, with type one suggesting that the patient always burns but never tans with sun exposure while type 2 indicates that the patient usually burns with sun exposure and has difficulty tanning. Type 3 patients have skin described as olive or light brown and will sometimes experience mild burns upon sun exposure. Type 4 patients have light to more moderate brown skin and tan with ease. Our latter Fitzpatrick types describe skin tones that are more dark brown, tanning very easily and rarely burning with type 5, and dark brown to black with no burning on sun exposure with type 6. Got it. That was a really nice breakdown. So how does a chemical peel work and can we walk through some different kinds? With chemical peels, we are applying a chemical exfoliant to the skin and this chemical creates a controlled wound of the epidermis and or dermis. We can use chemical peels to correct contour irregularities and stimulate cellular activity for regeneration and accelerated exfoliation. The depth of chemical penetration depends on the acid concentration and the duration of application. Chemical peels are classified based on depth of their penetration. So a superficial, very light peel involves the stratum corneum with or without the stratum granulosum. A superficial light peel involves the entire epidermis down to the basal layer. A medium depth peel extends through the epidermis and papillary dermis, sometimes involving the upper reticular dermis. And lastly, a deep peel gets to the mid-reticular dermis. Exactly, and with this schematic for peel depth, we can discuss some common types. We have our superficial peeling agents, which include the alpha-hydroxy acid peels, 
Jessner's solution, and salicylic acid. The classic medium depth peel is the trichloroacetic acid peel. And last but not least, we have our deep peels, which include the Baker Gordon formula and Heter's formula. Well said, Azam. Just as an FYI for our listeners, a very classic and high yield complication of deep chemical peels containing phenol, such as the Baker Gordon formula, is cardiac arrhythmias. Phenol can cause EKG changes, so cardiac monitoring is necessary when these peels are administered. If a patient develops arrhythmias, treatment would be initiated with IV lidocaine at one mg per keg. Definitely know this pearl. Is there anything we can do to help minimize the cardiac complications associated with phenol-containing peels? Yes, that's actually a great question. So take your time applying the peel, apply it in mini segments, 15 minutes per zone of the phase. Aim to take about 45 minutes to an hour when working with the Baker Gordon formula. The speed at which this peel is applied is super key, so slow and steady is very important. Adequate IV hydration is also recommended. Some sources mention that administering supplemental oxygen during the procedure may also help in preventing cardiac complications. Exactly. And for everyone listening, a general rule of thumb for all of these peels is to know the importance of pre-treatment for achieving the best results. For example, you want to counsel patients to minimize sun exposure and ideally stop smoking before their procedure. We also recommend a daily skincare regimen incorporating daily cleansing, skin toning, and retinoid products. Pre-treatment with tretinoin can increase the depth of peel penetration and accelerate wound healing as well. Definitely. Good point. Now that we've touched on some high-yield precautions to take, let's get into what we all love to talk about, treatment. So we know these peels are often used for wrinkles. What would you recommend for a deep set of wrinkles around the mouth? Can deep wrinkles be treated with chemical peels as well, Dr. Raghuram? So deep perioral wrinkles are best treated by a deeply penetrating peel like Heter's formula. Although the Heter peel contains phenol, it's actually the croton oil that is the active peeling agent, not the phenol. The Heter peel varies in the percentage of croton oil contained, ranging anywhere from 0.4% to 0.8%. Delicate areas like the lower eyelids or neck require a smaller concentration of croton oil. Medium concentrations are typically used for the cheeks, and more concentrated formulations near 0.8% are used to treat deeper rhytids, such as those in the perioral region. Yes, thanks for sharing that. I came across the importance of neutralizers as well. Can you touch on that briefly as well, Josh? Yeah, absolutely. Let's lay out the important facts here. First off, a neutralizer is essentially just any liquid that has a higher pH level than the acid you have on your skin. By applying a thin acid peel, we can normalize the pH, so to speak. Neutralization is typically carried out with a basic solution, such as 1% sodium bicarbonate, and is generally required only for specific acids, such as glycolic acid. Water can be used to neutralize peels as well. Phenol, croton oil peels, and Jesner solution cannot be neutralized. Salicylic acid and TCA are self-limited peels that also do not require neutralization but be careful to monitor these patients for side effects, particularly with salicylate toxicity when treating larger surface areas. Got it. Thanks, Josh. Yep, and with that said, we should all be aware of the dreaded complications of chemical peels. Infection, prolonged erythema, acne, scarring, as well as hypo and hyperpigmentation. 
locations with a history of keloid scars are typically not great candidates. Erythema can be managed well with hydrocortisone, and any patients with a history of HSV should be given antiviral prophylaxis. And with that, that should about wrap up the must-know points on lasers and chemical peels. Thank you both for this fantastic discussion, and a huge thank you to all of our listeners. We hope you found this very helpful. If you'd like to hear more episodes for in-service review, make sure to subscribe to us on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you listen to your favorite podcasts. And make sure to follow us on Instagram to stay in the loop.